Evening, everyone. Glad you made it out tonight. That's such a great time Wednesday night, our Sunday night. For those of you that couldn't make it, sorry. We had a good time. <laughs> well, we're in Jeremiah chapter 27 tonight. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Richard will get one right to your seat. You can follow along with us. We'll be looking at Jeremiah 27 through 29 this evening. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this night. Any opportunity, Lord, that we get to be in your word and study together is a blessing. And it is a blessing to be here, Lord. As your word says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. Lord, what a blessing it is for us to come here, Lord, to be able to be in your word. We'll be blessed by it, Lord, as we uh, dig into it. We pray your blessing upon the kids downstairs. Lord, knowing that they are being taught your word just as much as we're being taught it up here, Lord. And we just pray as it goes forth. Lord, we know your word says it won't return void. Let it do the work in our hearts and in the hearts of our kids. We pray in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Gunfight at the OK Corral. I think we all know that story. It's a 32nd shootout between lawmen and members of a loosely organized group called the Cowboys took place on October 26, 1881, about 3 p.m. in the afternoon in Tombstone, Arizona. One of the, the regarded as the most famous shootout in all of history in the American Wild West. Gunfight was uh, between this uh, result of a long-simmering feud with the Cowboys, Billy Claiborne, Ike and Billy Clanton, and Tom and Frank McClary on one side. On the other side, you had Marshal Virgil Earp, Special Policeman Morgan Earp, Wyatt Earp, and Temporary Policeman Doc Holliday on the other side. The battle began, and according to history, Billy Clanton and both McClory brothers were killed. Ike Clanton, Billy Claiborne, and West Fuller ran from the fight. Virgil, Morgan, and Doc Holliday were wounded, but Wyatt Earp was unharmed. What we're going to see tonight, in tonight's chapters, rather than shootout at O.K. Corral, we have a shootout at the O.K. Temple. On one side, we're going to see Jeremiah the prophet sent by God with, with a message Versus the false prophet Hananiah sent by himself with a false message. So clear the streets, board up the windows, get the kids inside. Tonight it's a shootout in the temple. When's that going to happen? Chapter 28. We begin in chapter 27, which really sets up for this big showdown. Look at verse 1 of chapter 27. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Saying Now, verse 1 in the newer translations, in the New American Standard, in the NIV reads, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. And since the bulk of chapter 27 deals with King Zedekiah, the final king of Judah, it could be that, that you know, that's the accurate reading. But it's also going to be possible that the prophecy came during the reign of Jeho- Jehoiakim, and it just wasn't delivered until the time of Zedekiah. Either way, it doesn't change the message. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, and the king of, king of Sidon by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. So Jeremiah is to make this wooden yoke and he put it on over his neck and, and we know, you know what yokes look like. We've talked about this before. They put it over an ox. and It was a sign of, of servitude. 
So Jeremiah was to, to make this yoke and put it on his neck and walk around every place he wanted with this yoke on. And people would say, what's the yoke on you for? And he would tell them, the Lord is, uh, we'll see, the Lord is going to bring us into captivity with, within the Babylonians. And, and it would spark the conversations with people, which the Lord often did with his prophets, get them to do you know, strange things in order to get people's attention. I'm so glad he doesn't do that today with pastors. Although he does allow us to go through trials and struggles to be an example to the flock, but it's not like it was with the prophets. Think of Ezekiel, you know, in chapter 4, he was told to lay on his left side for 390 days, and then on his right side for 40 days. I mean, just showing the number of days that Israel is going to bear its iniquities. I mean, could you imagine, 365 days, okay, when can I turn over? And Isaiah was told to walk around naked and barefoot for three years. Now, that probably meant walking around without a specific prophetic garment on rather than fully nude. But even still, these prophets were called to do some bizarre things that really to get God's point across. And because God knows what it takes to wake us up, to get our attention when he's trying to show us something. So here is Jeremiah told to make a wooden yoke and put it on, on and walk around with it on, as well as make a bunch of these maybe little yokes for these various kings that surround Judah. Maybe he's he sent to, to, to uh, Jeremiah sent to a summit with these foreign diplomats. We read uh, ambassadors from Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon. These are really Judah's adjacent neighbors uh, who are all in Jerusalem to work on a strategy to, to really revolt against the Babylonians. Now imagine this official meeting in progress when suddenly Jeremiah walks in and he's got this huge yoke upon his neck. Can you you know, and then all of a sudden he takes out these little little yokes that he made for all these guys that are there. And, and he's warning them. And he's telling them that, that, that these nations, that, that Babylon is going to rule. And it's best that they surrender and submit to its yoke. Very dramatic picture here. And everyone would have understood that the yoke meant, it spoke of total domination. They, they were heavy and prevented the animal from even lifting its necks. I think, man, what a contrast. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Babylon was going to be a tough taskmaster, whereas Jesus rules and reigns and, and steers us in his love. Now, verse 4, Jeremiah is told what to say. Verse 4, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and command them to say to their masters, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beast of the field, I have also given him to serve him. So while the nation shall serve him and his son and his son's son, until the time of his land comes, and then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. So God revealed to these ambassadors his foreign policy for the Middle East. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Babylon is going to rule over them for a period of time. Uh, he's, he's called God's servant. God is raising up Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, to do his bidding on this earth. And you just recognize that, that God is sovereign in that. Now we say God is sovereign, and he is. Sovereignty, however, is an activity of God. It's not an attribute. God is love. That's his attribute. He acts sovereignly as directed and, and even limited by his love. 
What do I mean by that? Well, God limits his sovereignty by his love at least three different ways. Number one, he allows sin to exist in his universe. Number two, he allows himself to be moved by prayer. Number three, he allows mankind free will. So within this, there's this love imposed limits. God rules and overrules for his glory and to accomplish his eternal purposes in human history, such as the case with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, on a side note, one unusual comment caught my attention. The Lord says, the beast of the field I have also given him to serve him. So speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, so did Nebuchadnezzar really rule over the wild beast? Did they serve him? And what does that mean? Daniel says something similar about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2, verses 37 to 38, that makes it seem that God really did, did give Nebuchadnezzar some sort of power to control wild beasts. I don't know if that's what it says, just something to, to think about. So these ambassadors from Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon are told to go. They're going to be servants to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 8. And it shall be that the nation and kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, and the pestilence until I've consumed them by his hand. To submit to King Nebuchadnezzar was to obey the will of of God. Again, Jeremiah is speaking to these summit leaders here from these nations all over the world, and, and here's his choice. You guys need to surrender to Babylon and live, or rebel and be crushed. <coughs> and here's the odd thing. By this point, Babylon had already invaded Judah twice, in 605 and in 597 B.C. Jeremiah's message wasn't anything that they had not heard before. He was just echoing what has become obvious. Because the Jews had gotten to the passive point of no return. Their judgment was inevitable. Yet they continued to hold out hope that God would deliver. And Jeremiah is saying, that hope that you have is in vain. And those who say otherwise, they're liars. Look at verse 9. He says, Therefore do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers, who speak to you saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon. For they prophesy a lie to you to remove you far from your land, and I will drive you out and you will perish. But the nations that bring their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve them, I will let them remain in their own land, says the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell in it. Historians tell us that Babylon was experiencing internal strife at this time, and, and we think that the, the weaker nations thought this was the right moment, the right time to break away from Babylon. Their own advisors were telling them to go for it, telling them what they wanted to hear. Yet God was who they should have been listening to because he said, man, stop. Stop with these plans to rebel. You know that there's always going to be ways that seem right to us. But if we must step outside of God's boundaries to walk in those ways, then they're wrong for us. Anytime we, we throw off God's yoke, we're making ourselves pray to the schemes of Satan. Anytime we say, well, well, I really want this plan for my life, even though God has shown me over and over and over again, no, if I continue to do my own thing, only pain and suffering is going to ensue. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is a way of death. So the Lord is saying to Jeremiah, if you'll just submit to Babylon, you, you know, you won't be carried off captives. Some of you, you'll be able to stay in your own land. You won't be destroyed, but you can stay right where you're at, and you can farm your own ground. You'll just have to pay a tribute to him. You know, uh, uh, but because Judah sought to fight against Nebuchadnezzar, you know, Judah was destroyed and carried away to Babylon. Whereas those other kings who listened to the voice of Jeremiah, submitted to Babylon, they were able to remain in their own lands and take care of their own properties. 
Well, next Jeremiah addresses King Zedekiah. Look at verse 12. <coughs> Excuse me again. I also spoke to Zedekiah, king of Judah, according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. So God wanted the kings of the surrounding nations to know that this was the same message that he had already brought to, to the king of Judah. They should serve the king of Babylon in order to avoid an even worse fate. Just surrender. Don't try to fight it. Don't rebel. Just surrender and live. Verse 13. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence, as the Lord has spoken, against a nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Therefore, do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon. For they prophesy a lie to you. For I have not sent them, says the Lord. Yet they prophesy a lie in my name, that I might drive you out, and that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy to you. Also I spoke to the priests and to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city be laid waste? I mean, everyone knew that Jeremiah was the real thing, the real deal, the genuine prophet that the Lord has sent. But all these other voices, false prophets, telling them what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that God was going to deliver them from Babylon. And they wanted to hear all the vessels that, that had been taken, they're going to be returned, brought back. Everything was going to be just like it was before. And so anyone saying that same thing, they would listen to it because they wanted it so badly. Oh yeah, this person has got to be, it's got to be true because I, I want this so badly. You know, and, and the same way I found out that people often will go from counselor to counselor until they find out that one counselor that's going to tell them what they want to hear. You know, it's, well, you know, we're thinking about getting a divorce and, and, you know, I don't have grounds for it. Well, you don't have grounds for it. And, 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 and you need to try and work your marriage out. You need to try and stick together. Well, I don't like that. I'm going to go to somewhere else. And they go to another counselor, another counselor, until they, they finally find someone that says, well, you know, if you're not happy, split up. They don't even go to the Word of God. And, and that's the thing. They, 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 they look for people that are going to tell them what they want to hear. You know, we were told in the last days that's going to be a sign. Second Timothy 4, verse 3 and 5, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and would turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Sadly, many pulpits today are just sounding boards that are just saying what people want to hear right back at them. The Lord is saying, hey, listen to my word and live. Listen to the true prophets. How do you know if it's a true prophet? Look at verse 18. <coughs> but if they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them now make intercession to the Lord of the host that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord and the house of the king of Judah and at Jerusalem do not go to Babylon. See, during the two times Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem, he took back to Babylon temple treasures, the golden vessels that had been dedicated to God. But some of them still remained. And here Jeremiah is saying, okay, if they're truly prophets, then let them, let them truly go before the Lord and see what, what if he says, you know, what the Lord's going to say. Let, let them, let's put the prophet to the test. In other words, look at verse 19. For thus said the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the carts, and concerning the remainder of the vessels that remain in the city, which Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon did not take when he carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 21. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon. And there they shall be until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. Jeremiah, the true prophet, says the Lord says that eventually, yes, all the sacred vessels in the temple will be taken to Babylon. None of the the vessels are going to stay. I think we all need to realize that if we don't obey God, we stand to lose the treasures that he intended to adorn our temple. The New Testament says that we are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God has given us talents and he's given us gifts and insight that, 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 that God wants us wants to use in our lives, but they can be squandered if we disobey. I like that it says in verse 22 that the sacred vessels will be carried away until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. Then I'll bring them up and restore them to this place. I like that. Lord says, yes, they're going to be carried away But there's going to come a time when I say that they're going to be restored. So he's given them hope. We know that day came in the book of Ezra chapter 1. After Cyrus the Persian overthrew the Babylonians, he issued a decree for the Jews to return to Judah and return the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from their temple. In fact, Ezra chapter 1 actually provides the inventory. But again, what a lesson for us. Even if we do lose the treasures God intended for us to possess, his grace can restore them to us in his time and in his way. Now, it's Jeremiah's message we just read in chapter 27 that now sets up for the shootout of the OK Corral Temple in chapter 28. Begins with this cowboy named Hananiah, <laughs> a false prophet coming up against Jeremiah Earp, the true prophet. Look at verse 1 of chapter 28. And it happened in the same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and in the fifth month, then Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and of all the people, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And I will bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah who went to Babylon, Says the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Okay, here's his prophecy. This first shot is fired. Hananiah's so-called word from the Lord. Everything Jeremiah said wouldn't happen. Hananiah is saying, it's going to happen. Vessels are going to be returned within two years, and Babylon's going to fall, and we're going to prevail. Really? Well, now it's time for Jeremiah to shoot back. Verse 5. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah, in the presence of the priest, in the presence of all the people who stood in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, well, Amen. Lord, do so. The Lord, perform your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all who were carried away captive from Babylon to this place. You have to read this with some sarcasm in Jeremiah's voice because, I mean, it'd be right. I think he's really mocking Hananiah. I mean, you notice what Jeremiah says. I said, oh, yes. Have the Lord do what you say. Have the Lord perform your words, which you have prophesied. In other words, it's all about your words. I mean, you couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with the word of the Lord if your life depended upon it. You missed big time. I mean, Jeremiah is making it abundantly clear who was speaking here and, and that it was Hananiah's words and not the Lord's. Nevertheless, Jeremiah says in verse 7, 
Nevertheless, hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and the hearing of all the people. The prophets who have been before me and before you of old prophesied against many countries and great kingdoms of war and disaster and pestilence. See, Hannah and I wasn't just disagreeing with Jeremiah. He was disagreeing with a long line of, of prophets, Isaiah, Micah, Joel, and others that said judgment was coming upon Judah. And what Jeremiah is saying is, is just don't take my word on this. There have been many men before me, men of God, that have said the same thing. And I think in the same way, the cults that we have today, they're nothing new. And men of God have called them out years ago and what they are. I mean, take, for example, the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons when they attack the deity of Jesus Christ. You know, we come at it from a standpoint of an issue that had already been settled by more godly men than us. You know, in 325 AD, the wise and faithful leaders of the Council of Nicaea branded Arius and his followers, those who were denying the deity of Jesus Christ, as heretics. I mean, 325 AD. Settled a long time ago. Listen, the doctrines we stand on aren't something we just decided on today. These have come from years of understanding the scriptures and, and applying them and have been hammered out by thousands of years of scrutiny from godly men. See, it's not just blasphemous, but arrogant to throw out 2,000 years of church history because you hear an interpretation that's more pleasant to the years. Well, as for this false prophet, Jeremiah says in verse 9, as for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly sent. In other words, the proof is going to be in the pudding. Deuteronomy 18.21 tells us that if you identify a false prophet, uh, you can do that by the fact that his prophecy fails. It's always just a, a matter of time just to wait to see it's played out. And, and that's the best way to test a prophecy anyway, just give it some time. And Jeremiah says, who, whoever prophesies truth is the one who wins, the other will lose. It's this battle going on. So Hananiah fights back. Oh yeah, Jeremiah? Verse 10. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke off of the prophet Jeremiah's neck and broke it. Uh, this is radical as going on here. And it's heating up. Hananiah reaches over, takes it off, and he said, rips him, breaks it down into pieces. Oh, yeah. And you can just see this, this happening. I mean, Hananiah is now fighting back. And verse 11, And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah won his way. Remember, this is all done in the temple, right in front of the priests and all the people of Judah. Hananiah is upstaging the prophet Jeremiah. I mean, just showing him up. Now notice when Jeremiah is challenged, what he does. I mean, he just walks away. He says, and the prophet Jeremiah won his way. A couple of things I see here. Number one, first, this false prophet is really just, he's putting on a show. And that's what false prophets usually do. They have to. Because they lack any authority in what they say, so they have to make it up by how they say it. Maybe they get very loud and boisterous and pace back and forth and this what's coming down their heads, or they get really emotional and the tears are flowing down, or they knock people over the, on the ground and, and they're rolling on the floor and claiming it's the Holy Spirit. All this emotion and, and theatrics going on. Why? Because they lack the authority and the foundation of the Word of God, so they have to put on a show. And then the second thing I notice here is that Jeremiah's response. He just walks away. I mean, if it were me, 
after ripping off that yoke off of my, my neck and breaking it into pieces, I think I would have grabbed a piece of that yoke and smacked him upside his head. Here you go, buddy. The yoke's on you now. <laughs> Literally. But, but here's this kind of anticlimactic scene that we read, and the prophet Jeremiah went his way. Wait! Get revenge! Defend what God said! Listen, Jeremiah is teaching us an important lesson here. God doesn't need us to defend him. This wasn't a battle between Jeremiah and Hananiah. This was a battle between Hananiah and the Lord. Lord doesn't need us to defend him. He simply calls us to, to speak the truth. He calls us to give a defense for our faith, the hope that's within us, but not to def- defend God. Not, uh, the, the pressure to persuade is not on me. Once I declare what God has given me to say, then it's up to God's Spirit to do the work in the hearts and the lives of people. And I can walk away confident that I shared God's word and trusted God's ability to verify his truth. When I share his word, the word of the Lord, I'm confident that God will use it to reach that person because God's word says so. Isaiah 55:11 shows, so shall my word be that goes forth from my house. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing which, for which I sent it. Why? Because the authority that's backed by God's word, it's God's authority. And I can walk away uh, confident that God will do a work he's setting out to do in a person's life. Now we might think, well, wait a minute. This was a shootout at OK Temple. And, and, and Jeremiah Earp just walked away. Why didn't he stay and fight? Because the battle didn't belong to him. The battle belonged to the Lord. On top of the fact, the Bible does say in Proverbs 15:1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We're also told in James 1.20, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So Jeremiah choosing to turn away from the wrath and let God handle it, and God does. Look now at verse 12. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah. So Jeremiah walked away from the fight. He's waiting on the Lord, and the Lord says, okay, now it's time. Verse 13. Now, Go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made in their place yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. I have given him the beast of the field also. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but you make these people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. Don't mess around with God. One shot, battle's over. Hananiah predicted in two years the Jews will return from Babylon. God says, Hananiah, you're going to be dead within a year. And he died within that same year in the seventh month. Don't mess around with God. God doesn't miss. What's interesting is that the seventh month was Tishri. It was the festival month. Three feasts occurred in that one month. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And all the males in Judah were required to be at the temple during this time. That means that, that, that the whole nation really would learn of Hananiah's demise. This was a, a public thing going on here. They know, hey, this happened just like God said. And, and this, that means that in God's time, in this man's death was a national spectacle. Everyone saw it and heard about it. And maybe, hey, did you hear about Hananiah? Yeah, man, he was a false prophet. He died just like God said that he would. And they knew the man had penalty being a false prophet. 
Again, this tells me God's timing is perfect, especially when we let him fight the battles for us. Now, chapter 29. You're going to love it. Chapter 29 is where we get chapter, Jeremiah 29, 11. And if you're not familiar with it, you'll see what I mean when we get there. Verse 1 of chapter 29. Now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, Jeremiah sends this letter. Who is it to? Well, it's to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people who were carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, that, would, of course, would include Daniel. He would be one of the guys that would be uh, reading this letter. And, and obviously, you know, Jeremiah was a much older man. Daniel was very young. Ezekiel would also be one who would have read this letter. When did this happen? Verse 2. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. <coughs> the letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Jamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, we read when... And where this letter is going to, now what does it say? Verse 5, he tells them in this letter, Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Now, on the surface, it may sound as if God is telling them to become assimilated into Babylon. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. Get married, build houses, plant gardens. You have no choice. But that's not what he's saying. Keep in mind that God has promised and will remind them of this promise in verse 10 that their captivity would only last 70 years and that the Jews would then be able to return to Jerusalem. Everything they, they were being told here needed to be interpreted by that truth. There's only, only a 70-year time period there. That means that when they took their wives to have children, it was so that they can be increased as a people, a distinct people. Not to be diminished, not to be assimilated. Certainly there was the command they understood not to intermarry with the Babylonians, but to remain separated unto the Lord. They were to build their houses in the manner of Jews rather than buy Babylonian houses. They're to plant gardens and eat their fruit because so much of their diet of the Babylonians were forbidden to the Jews. So they were to live in Babylon, not as Babylonians, but as separated people of God who knew that they would one day be returning to their kingdom. You know that history proved that this was a successful strategy. The Jews prospered in Babylon. They not only survived, they thrived. And many of the Jews rose to positions of prominence. Daniel and Esther, Nehemiah. During the exile, away from their temple, the Jews in Babylon developed the synagogue, or our meeting. It was a community center where the Jews worshipped Yahweh, taught the Torah, and kept the Jewishness alive. But think about that. Isn't this what we were called to do? As Christians, we know that Jesus is coming at any moment to resurrect, to, to rapture the church. After a time of seven years, when the earth experiences the great tribulation, Jesus will tend then, <coughs> excuse me, Return to earth with us in his glorious second coming to establish his kingdom. 
And we're told in John 17 that we're, we're in this world, but we're not of this world. So what do we do until the Lord comes back? Well, the same thing that the Jews were in Babylonia, Babylon to do. The Lord tells us in Luke 19, 13, occupy till I come. In other words, like the Jews were to marry other Jews, we too are to marry our own kind, other believers, other Christians. Our homes should be built on, on solid Christian principles. Our lives should bear spiritual fruit. We have a, a synagogue of sorts. We, you know, the church should be an outpost of heaven on earth. It's our Christian uh, you know, community center where we worship Jesus. We keep our, our faith alive. We, we, we teach from God's word. Our job isn't to take over the government, but to be good citizens no matter what type of government we're forced to live under. Yes, pray for our leaders so we can live in peace. Paul told us that in, in uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. He says, I exhort you, first of all, supplication and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So yes, Jesus is returning, but we're not, we're not all supposed to move to a mountaintop with guns and food rations and, and just wait. Oh, we got, I, got, I got my, you know, I got my little uh, haven where I'm going to hide out. No, occupy till he comes. Do the work of the Lord. Be in the world, but not of the Lord. It's been said, live as if the Lord is returning tomorrow, but plan as if he's not coming back for a thousand years. Verse 8. For thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. In other words, the Jews in Babylon were being told to keep their bags packed. God's going to deliver them any day now. Jeremiah says, don't listen to them. They're a bunch of liars. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. And it was exactly 70 years after the first deportation of the Jews to Babylon that Persia conquered this city and allowed the exiled Jews to return home. Now here we come. Verse 11, one of those cloud partying, sun shining through verses in Jeremiah. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Love that verse. Love that verse. A very popular verse. See it on plaques, t-shirts, even tattoos. But when we see that verse, we have to remember the context of it. This is a promise given to the exiled Jews living in Babylon being punished for their sins. And here the Lord is saying to the Jews, if you follow your own thoughts, if you rebel against the king of Babylon, then you're going to have a disastrous end. It's going to be horrible for you. But if you obey me and follow my words, know this, that I'm thinking about you. And my thoughts concerning you are those of peace. I'm desiring your peace. I'm desiring not evil for you. I mean, even while they were serving their sentence, God isn't angry towards them. He's not vindictive. He takes no pleasure in their pain. His thoughts toward them, as we read here, are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give them a future and a hope. I mean, this was God's word to his people in their darkest hour. In the aftermath of their greatest failure, he says, I'm giving you hope. Yet God brought Abraham out of the land of idols and that, that promise is that, that God would bring them back into the land that there's still hope even after the fall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah will say of God in Lamentations 3.23, Great is your faithfulness. 
See, the false prophets were, were prophesying a false hope, but God's hope was real. Our God, our God of Israel is a God of second chances and he redeems and he restores. So many times we're in captivity or we're, we're having all these problems. And, oh, no, God forgot me. God's not thinking about me anymore. No. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. He's always thinking about you. But God is always looking at the end of the road. Our common mistake is our, is our current situation, our current problem. Oh, how is this going to be fixed? What's going to happen here? And a lot of times we jump to conclusions, not considering what the end result is. Oh, this looks great. You know, this, let's go, let's jump in. And God is warning us, no. The end of that path is destruction. Stay away from that. I'm thinking about what is best for you. I've not forgotten you. I'm thinking about you. And my thoughts concerning you are that of peace. To bring this to an unexpected end, trust me on this. That's what the Lord is saying. I'm doing something special in your life. And indeed he was. When the Jews went into Babylon, they were a dollar's people. When they came out, never again did they worship idols. They were purged. They were healed. They were matured in those days in the Babylonian captivity. And as a result, the Lord says in verse 12, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Now, if you go back to Daniel, when you have a chance, not tonight, not right now, but maybe later on tonight when you get home, Daniel chapter 9, and read what Daniel did when he understood this prophecy from Jeremiah of the 70 years. When he read it, he realized the 70 years were about over. And what does Daniel do? He begins to fast and pray because the Lord said to here in verse 12, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. When? After the 70 years. And verse 13. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That too is encouraging to the Jews. See, they were taught in order to seek God, in order to find God, you need to go to the temple and worship. The temple was this one place on earth where God could be found. But the Jews in Babylon, and they were far away from their temple. 800 miles. Yet even in this pagan land, the Lord says, if they seek him with all their heart, he will be found. I think that one of our problems is that we oftentimes have a half-hearted attitudes towards God. We're not really seeking God with all of our heart. We're kind of, oh, Lord, you know, this would be kind of cool, God. Instead of, Lord, really seeking him. The Bible says in James five sixteen, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. How many times are we really fervent in our prayers? How many times are we desperate before God? How many times do we really seek God with all of our hearts? I don't think God is pleased when we come to Him with this half-hearted attitude. We need to come with a total commitment. Verse 14. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, concerning all the people who dwell in this city, and concerning your brethren who have not gone out with you into captivity, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will send on them the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, and will make them like rotten figs that cannot be eaten. They are so bad. Remember the prophecy in chapter 24 of the good figs and the bad figs? Those who surrendered to Babylon were the good figs. Those who listened to the false prophets were, were the bad figs. And, and what do you do with bad figs? You cry because they've gone bad because they taste so good. You've got to throw them away. Verse 18. He goes on, And I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and I will deliver them to trouble amongst all the kings of the earth, 
to be a curse, an astonishment, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they have not heeded my word, says the Lord, which I sent to them by my servants the prophets, rising up early and sending them, neither would you heed, says the Lord. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, all of you, the captivity whom I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who prophesy a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall slay them before your eyes. Lord says, let this be an example to all of you in captivity. What happens to those who are false prophets and speak lies to the people, they shall be slain. And he calls a couple of them out by name, Ahab and Zedekiah. Their false prophecies, uh, prophecies are going to be silenced. Verse 22 says, And because of them, a curse shall be taken up by all the captivity, uh, captivity of Judah who are in Babylon, saying, The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Now here's a great Bible trivia question you can ask people. Name the five men that Nebuchadnezzar threw into the fiery furnace. I mean, oh, I know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I got that right. But there's two more, Zedekiah and Ahab. That'll stump them. We're told why Zedekiah and Ahab met such a fiery fate. Look at verse 23. Because they have done disgraceful things in Israel, have committed adultery with their neighbors, wives, and have spoken lying words in my name, which I have not commanded them. Indeed, I know, and I'm a witness, says the Lord. What says I know? I know what you did. Don't think that I can't see your sin. I think that's, that's heavy duty. God's saying here, I witness, I witness all that you've done. You know, Jesus said uh, in Revelation over and over to the churches, I know your works. I know what you've done. I know what's going on. Listen, when God starts bearing witness against you, you know you're in big trouble. Finally, in verse 24, we have another gunfight at the OK Corral between Jeremiah and a man named Shemaiah. Look at verse 24. The Lord says, you shall also speak to Shemaiah the Nehelamite. Nehelamite means dreamer. So this was Shemaiah the, the dreamer. Remember back in chapter 23, Jeremiah spoke of the false prophets who were appealing to dreams and visions. Oh, I had this dream, I, this vision that support their false message. Shemaiah is a chief culprit here. And we see Shemaiah sending out letters and the Lord telling Jeremiah to talk about him. Look at verse 24. He says, You shall also speak to Shemaiah the Nehelamite, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You have sent letters in your name to all the people who are in Jerusalem, to Zephaniah the son of Messiah the priest, to all the priests, saying, The Lord has made you priests instead of Jehoiada the priest, so there should be officers in the house of the Lord over every man who is demented and considers himself a prophet, that you should put him in prison and in stocks. So he's saying what, what uh, uh, Shemaiah that wrote in his letter. You know, that, that he wrote ordering the replacement of the high priest Jehoiada with his own cohort Zephaniah. And then he rebukes the priest for not arresting those who would disagree with him, namely Jeremiah, and calls anyone who disagrees with him demented. Look at verse 27. Now therefore, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who makes himself a prophet to you? For he is sent to us in Babylon, saying, The captivity is long. Build houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat their fruit. So again, here's another shootout, only this time with letters. Jeremiah sent his letter of truth, and Shemaiah, the dreamer, sends his letter of lies. See, he wants to appoint from Babylon a high priest in Jerusalem who's sympathetic to his false prophecies, and, and he even wants Jeremiah thrown in the stocks, and not investment stocks. 
The word for stocks here means neck irons. Basically a ball and chain attached to Jeremiah's neck. Thankfully his plan falls. Verse 29. Now Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. Now that must have been an awkward moment. How does Jeremiah react? By just speaking the word of God. He fires back in verse 30. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Send to all those in captivity saying, In other words, Write another letter to the exiles. Here's what I want the letter to say. Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah the Nehelamite, because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, and I have not sent him, and he has caused you to trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah the Nehelamite and his family. He should not have anyone to dwell among this people, nor shall he see the good that I will do for my people, says the Lord, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord. <coughs> because he misled God's people, the dreamer's life will end a nightmare. One last application for us as we close here to realize that non-believers, they're going to scoff at you at your life. They're going to write letters to discredit you. They're going to make fun of you and your insistence that God's word is true and that the Lord could return at any moment. They're going to criticize everything you think and do, your whole biblical worldview, because it's grounded in your love for Jesus. Don't let that dissuade you from the truth. The Lord knows those who are His and those who are putting on a show and He will repay each one according to their own works. And remember, the battle belongs to the Lord. Be faithful to God's Word and He'll see you through. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for